Okay, so we have the, the Parsha of uh, Chaisara. And as we know, the Parsha begins with the acquisition of Ma'ar Samach That is the opening section. And the truth is, it's a long section in the sense that uh, looking through here, the Torah devotes no less than 20 psukim to the purchase of the Ma'ar Samach which is a lot in terms of Torah space. <clears throat> and that itself is worthy of our attention. We really see the, the acquisition of Marsa It's presented to us uh, blow by blow, stage by stage. Abram spoke to them, they responded this way. He spoke to Ephraim, he responded this way, back and forth. And uh, it seems that no detail is spared. It's certainly an arichus, and, and that requires our uh, attention. But the truth is, not only does the Torah devote a lot of space at the time to the acquisition of Mar Samachbela in the beginning of our Parsha, it furthermore reiterates, it goes back and mentions on numerous subsequent occasions the acquisition of Mar Samachbela. This occurs no less than three times subsequently in Chumash Bereshis. And the first time is actually at the end of, of, of our very own Parsha. In Perik Kafhei, Pasuk Tes and Yud. We're skipping, of course, to the end. We will come back to the beginning. But just to see and to illustrate what we're talking about in Perik Kafhei, Pasuk Tes. So this describes the passing of Avram. And the Pasuk reads, <coughs> and it's worthwhile to see the, the Psukim, to really get a sense of, of what is happening here. Perikafei Pasuk Tes Vayik so Yitzhak Bishmal Ba'nav. So Yitzhak and Yishmael, they bury Avram. And of course, it's very significant that Yitzhak is mentioned before Yishmael. Yishmael allows Yitzhak uh, to go first at that time. Either way, where is uh, Avram buried? El Ma'ar Samach None other than Ma'ar Samach which we were expecting. And the Pasuk continues, El Sedei Ephron ben Sochrachiti, it's in the field of Ephron, Asher al Mamre, which is nearby Mamre, which we, we surely know. I mean, the, posit, the Torah drilled it into us over the course of 20 psukim at the beginning of this very parsha. We know where Marasamach is, but the Pasuk tells us where it is. It's in the field of Ephron. It's near Mamre. And then the next Pasuk says even further reiterates, Hasadeh Hashekana Avraham Eis B'nei Ches. This is none other than the field that Avraham brought from B'nei Ches. Shama Kubar Avraham B'Sarah Ishto. That's where Avraham and Sarah were buried. So we have elaboration at the beginning of the Parsha, and we have reiteration at the end of the Parsha. Not only at the end of the Parsha, but also at the end of the Chumash, that is to say, Chumash Bereshis. If we move <coughs> ahead <coughs> to Parshas Vayechi, Perik Memtes, Pasuk Lamed. Perik Memtes, Pasuk Lamed. So here we are dealing with <coughs> Yaakov, Yaakov has given the brachas to his children, Perik Memtes, and then he says, or Kaftes even, Vayitzavu Sam, 
he, he charges, commands his sons, uh, and says, I am now being gathered to my people. Bury me together with my fathers. Once again, the cave, which is in the field of Ephron, and further, Pasuk Lamed Bamara Asher B'steh Machpela in the cave, which is in the field of Machpela Asher Opnei Mamre Be'eretz Kanaan. It's near Mamre. It's in Eretz Kanaan. And Vaiter Asher Kana Avraham Es Hasadeh Me'es Efron Achiti Lachuzas Kover. That Avraham Borf Achuzas Kover. It just keeps on going. We get a whole recap again of the history. Pasuk Lamed Aleph says further, Shama Kavuas Avraham. That's where they buried Avram. They saw Ishto, saw his wife. Shama kavarus Yitzchak. Bes Rivka Ishto. They buried Yitzchak and Rivka. Veshama kavarti es Leia. That's where I buried Leia. And the next pasuk keeps going. Miknei Hasadeh Thamara Ashebo Me Eis Ches. The acquisition of the field and the cave from Bnei Ches. Every opportunity it seems that Maras Machpela is mentioned the whole history we go over again. And in fact, in case you're wondering, is that the last we hear of the history of Mar Samachpela? It is not. Because later in that very same Parsha, in Perignun, Pasigud Gimel, the Psukim we just read is Yaakov telling his sons to bury him there. In Perignun, Pasigud Gimel, we have the Torah's description <coughs> of them burying him there. And the Pasig reads, and by this stage, we should be expecting it, but nonetheless, Vayisuo so one of Kanan, his sons carried him to Eretz Kanan, Vayikuroso bimarasteh Machpela. They buried him in the cave of, of the field of Machpela, Asher Kana Avraham Esasadeh Lachuzas Kever, that Avraham had purchased the field, Me'es Efronachiti Apenei Mamri. It just goes on and on. And whenever we have Marasa Machpela, we get the whole history again. And all of this needs to be understood. What is behind these repetitions? What's very interesting is, having seen everything that we've seen, let us now go back and have a look at the burial of Yitzchak. I mean, he's the only one that we haven't seen. We can only imagine what's going to happen. And that's in Perik Lamed Hei, Pasuk Kaftet. It's at the end of Parshas Vayishlach. Perik Lamed Hei, Pasuk Kaftet. So Yitzchak passes away, and then the Pasuk states, again, Perik Lamed Hei, Pasuk Kaftet, Vayigvay Yitzchak, Vayomos. So Yitzchak expires, he passes away. Vayosef Alamav is gathered to his people. Zakenos Vayamim, elderly. Vayikbaru Oso, Esav, Vyakov, Bonov. And Esav and Yaakov, his sons, bury him. There, of course, Esav is mentioned first. He gives Yaakov no such courtesy that Ishmael gave to Yitzchak. But either way, leaving aside the order of the sons as they're mentioned, the Pasuk says, <coughs> he passes away and his sons bury him. Where? And we're already conditioned. It's going to be. Nothing. 
Not a mention, not only is there no mention of the history of the purchase of Mar Samachbela when it comes to the burial of Yitzhak, there isn't even a mention of the fact at the time that he's buried in Mar Samachbela. And this is now a deafening silence. Because when it came to Avram, we have the whole Arichus. And when it came to Yaakov, we have the whole Arichus twice. And when it comes to Yitzhak, we have nothing. The Kolzer Omer Darsheni. What are we to make of, of all of this? What is, what is happening here? <coughs> the key to understanding uh, our, the Torah's relationship, shall we say, with Mar Samachpela comes from a phrase in the beginning of our Parsha. And that is... Uh, Avram asks, and where is the phrase? Pasuk Dalit. Perik Kaf Gimel Pasuk Dalit. The fourth Pasuk of the Parsha. What does it say? Uh, Avram says to, to Bnei Ches, right? his first dealings are with Bnei Ches, and he says, I'm a... a, a a sojourner and a settler, whatever is the, the, the duality there. Tenuli achuzas kever imachem. Please give me achuzas kever. We'll come back to that term. That I may bury my deceased. <coughs> Avram is asking for an achuzas kever. What is the significance of that term? We normally uh, uh, approach the beginning of Parshas Chayisara and what's it all about? Uh, Sarah uh, uh, tragically has passed away. Avram is looking for a place to bury her, and and the the the, the proceedings ensue. But the truth of the matter is, Avram is not just quote unquote looking for a place to bury Sarah. He's not just looking f- for a kever. He's looking for what he calls achuzas kever. Achuzas kever. <clears throat> literally means a burial holding or a burial uh, estate. And what this represents is that it is not just to be for Sarah, but he already has, in a sense, the future in mind. It's for his family. But what it re- represents is a holding, in a sense, a stake of his family establishing their presence in this place. So in other words, it's not just to deal with the, the, the immediate issue at hand of the burial of Sarah, but it's to establish Avram's family as, in a sense, permanent and significant residents of, <coughs> of this locale. Indeed, it's for this reason, say the Mepharshim, that Avram really needs to be negotiating with two entities. And he keeps them going back and forth, and they, and they mix and merge after a while. The first entity are called Bnei Ches. They're the first people that he speaks to. But then, of course, in time, he will speak directly and specifically with Ephron. So why does he need to speak to both? First he speaks to Bnei Ches, and then he speaks to, to, to Ephron. <coughs> it's, not, it's not just that he, he wants their recommendation that so he can speak to Ephron. He's looking for a different thing from each of them. The Bnei Ches, they represent what we could call the council of that region, the Vad. And given that Avram wants to establish his presence by means of Achuzas Kever, 
of this of this burial holding of this estate, it needs to be ratified by the council. And that is what Bnei Ches are. And that's why before he even talks to Ephron, the first thing <coughs> he needs to establish with Bnei Ches is, I'm, you should know, I'm looking for Achuzas Kefer. Once they give their acquiescence to a greater or, le- or lesser degree, at that point, he asks them to direct him to Ephron to purchase the specific plot. I mean, someone owns it and he wants to buy it. But we can see that these are really two different things. Being ratified as, as, as being licensed, so to speak, to establish himself there in the Zachuzas Kever and the purchase of the, of the property at hand. Two dinim, if we could use the brisker terminology. There are two dynamics going on here. And the truth of the matter is, with this in mind, we can understand why the purchase of Mar Samachpela at the end of this section is mentioned twice. Literally in Psukim, back to back. If we have a look at the concluding Psukim, interestingly, they're Shani. Uh, they're not, not all part of Rishon, but Pasuk <coughs> uh, Zion, again, we're in Perik Kaf Gimel here. Pasuk Yudzain reads, Vayakam Sede Ephron. The field of Ephron, it arose, Asheba Machpela, Asherifne Mamre, Hasadeva Mara Ashebo, the field, the, the cave that's within it. And this, of course, is part of the negotiations between Avram and Ephron. Avram really only ever asked for the cave. And in fact, he refers to the cave as being at the side of the field. Ephron says, actually, the cave is in the middle of the field. As if to say, if you want the cave, buy the field. Of course, Ephron can say all of that because he's ostensibly offering to give the whole thing to Ephron anyway. And therefore, he can really portray it as being as intrusive as possible because it's a gift on his part. Ephron understands he's going to have to pay for it, which means he ends up buying the field. He started out buying a cave, ended up buying the field. Either way, Pasuket Ches says, La Avraham lemikna le'enei b'nei ches. This was an acquisition from, uh, for Avra. <coughs> um, and that's it. Pasuk Yudches. Marasa acquired by Avram. Pasuk Kaf, the final Pasuk. Vayakam it's mamish a repetition, seemingly. Vayakam asadeh v'amarashabu, the field and the cave that's in it. L'Avram l'achuzas kever, me'es b'nei ches. Again, acquired. How many times can the same thing be acquired? Avram had enough Tzara's buying it once. Well, he's got to buy it twice. But, but you have these two psukim back to back. And what's also interesting, and again, we're always trying to be as attentive as we can to the psukim. The first time the acquisition is mentioned in Pasuk Yudches, it says, let's see there, Pasuk Yudches, Avraham lemikna This was an acquisition for Avram, in view of B'nei Ches. Sounds like he's not buying it from them. They're just witnessing or watching or observing. But in Pasuk Kaf, the final words are Me'es B'nei Ches. He purchases it from the B'nei Ches. So what are B'nei Ches doing there? They're there to observe or they're there to sell. It's, it's, it's a, it seems to be a contradiction. <coughs> But this question is actually dealt with by one of the Rishonim. 
Rebbeinu Yosef Bechor Shor, one of the Baalei Atosvos, one of the lesser quoted uh, Rishonim, but he has the Perush on the Torah, which is out of this world. And the Bechor Shor explains that these two psukim, the two concluding psukim, really reflect the acquisition of the two things that Avram wanted. The first is the property itself, and the second is the right to establish it as Achuzas Kefir. And it's for this reason that the first time round, that is to say the, the, the first two verses, 17 and 18, <coughs> which is about the acquisition from Ephron itself, it says, Avraham lemikna In terms of acquiring the property, he didn't, he didn't buy the property from Bnei Ches. He bought it from Ephron in the view of Bnei Ches. But the second pasuk, that is to say, Yutes and Kaf, refers to the acquisition of a second element, which is the right to be a chuzas kaver. Pasuk Kaf says, The notion that he is able to establish a holding here, where did he get that from? That he purchased from Bnei Ches. So the property comes from Ephron, observed by Bnei Ches, and the chuzas kever rights are purchased from Bnei Ches. I mean, it literally opens up the parsha, and the truth is, <coughs> says the Bechor Shor, not only is Avram acquiring two different things from two different entities, he's actually acquiring them in two different ways. The first thing he acquires is the cave from Ephraim. The second thing he acquires is estate rights from Bnei Ches. He acquires them in two different ways, and they're both spelled out in the Pasuk. The first, Pasuk Yudzayin and Ches, is the, is the acquisition of the cave from Ephron, the cave and field from Ephron. How is it acquired from Ephron? Well, as we know, with money. Arba meo shekel kesep, as it says in Pasuk Tetzayin. So the field is acquired, field and cave are acquired from Ephron with money. How are the burial rights, more correctly, how are the burial estate rights acquired from Bnei Ches? Says the Bechor Shor, that's in Pasuk Yutes, V'acherichin kavar esara ishto. After acquiring the property from Ephron, Avram then acquires the Achuzas Kever rights from Bnei Ches. And how does he do that? By burying Sarah. The act of burying Sarah was the act through which he then established that uh, this is now his his estate. Why is this so significant for us, aside from illuminating the, the opening section of Parshas Chayisara? The acquisition of Ma'ara Samach especially as an achuza, as a holding, had n- nothing less than nationwide ramifications for future generations. <coughs> we know, Masa Avos, Simen Laboni. The experiences of the Avos will then subsequently be experienced on a national level by the descendants. Avram has been promised the land. He's walked the length and breadth of the land. And what is the message? The land will be yours. What is the first event 
whereby Avram legally acquires and takes possession of a portion of the land. It's the acquisition of Marasa Machpelah. As if to say, the acquisition of Marasa Machpelah, it's another level of solidifying the formative status of the acts of, of Avram with the reverberations for his children. In acquiring Marasa Machpelah and getting a foothold in the land in that way, Avram is concretizing the acquisition of the entire land of Israel. It's for this reason, <clears throat> say the Mepharshim, Avram doesn't want to receive it as a gift from Ephraim. Aside from all the other reasons. Who knows if he'll ever be able to repay that gift. But he doesn't want it as a gift from Ephraim because he wants to remove Ephraim from the, occasion in, uh, from the equation entirely. The point of acquiring this is that it doesn't belong to anyone any else anymore. It belongs to Avram solely. He doesn't even want to have Ephraim's fingerprints on the gift. He pays him and we're done. And, and, and there's no looking back. And I think when we appreciate what we're calling the national significance, nothing less than the national significance of the purchase of Marsa Machpelah, it will help us explain something else. Let us go back again to the final uh, verses, the final four verses. As we mentioned already, the acquisition in conclusion is mentioned twice. First the field and cave, and then the burial estate. Where are these places? The geographical description is also different in these two sets of verses. In Pasuk Yud Zion, it says, <coughs> The field of Ephron, which is Bemachpelah, and where is all of that? What, what are we told in terms of the location of this field and cave? It's Lifnei Mamre. It's near Mamre. Anything else? No. Nothing else is necessary. We know where Mamre is. I mean, where, wherever it is. It's near Hebron. It's near wherever. And therefore, we have, we have the location in conclusion. And that's that. Pasuk Yotes. What we're calling the second set of concluding verses. kavar Abraham es ishto. Then after then, Avram buried Sarah. Where? El maras de the, field of the, 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 the cave of the field of Machpelah. Where is that? Up in Mamre. Near Mamre. Where's that? He Hebron. None other than Hebron. And where's that? The Eretz Canaan. It's very unusual. The first time around, the, 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 the Pasuk sufficed by saying it's near Mamre, and if you don't know where Mamre is, it's too late. Or start, start the Pasha from the beginning again. I mean, you don't know that Mamre is Hebron. And moreover, you need to be told that Hebron is in the land of Canaan. I mean, these are very, very basic things. I mean, you know, don't, do not pass go and don't collect whatever. Go back to the beginning and find out where Hebron is. But the point is, the reason why the Torah gives us the national setting of Marasa Machpelah the second time around is because it was this element which is of national consequence. Because the purchase was already Avram establishing a foothold in his acquisition of the country as a whole. And that is why uh, the second time around, when, when, we're, when we're told where it is, we're given location, city, 
country, the whole thing, because that acquisition reverberated ultimately outwards to the whole country. What are the, what are the ramifications of this? I mean, we're in our fourth set of ramifications already, but, 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 but we see that it, it extends even further. There's a very well-known statement of Chazal, <clears throat> and it actually accrues to this week's parasha, applies to this week's parasha, because at the center, or for, for certainly dominating the parasha, space-wise, is Eliezer's quest for a wife for Yitzchak. <clears throat> that story is told twice. It is approximately twice as long as it needs to be. It's told firstly from the point of view of the Torah, and then it's told again in Eliezer's words. And Rashi, citing the Medrash, famously says, uh, You see how beautiful is the, the conversation even of the servants of the others, or perhaps specifically the servants of the others. <coughs> More than, the, more than the Torah of the descendants. Many laws, which are full, full Arisa laws, will learn them from an extra word or an extra letter. And here Eliezer has 20 extra psukim at, at his disposal. When does the Torah repeat at length? When does the Torah reiterate at length to show how beloved something is? Because how do you show how beloved something is? You can't stop talking about it. And Lahavdil, that's really what the Torah is doing. It does it with Eliezer. It does it with the Mishkan. The Mishkan is so beloved, it takes four and a half parshas and repeated and repeated again. I believe that once we understand the full impact or the full implications of the purchase of Marsa Machpelah, it's the first step in the acquisition and the concretization of the acquisition of the land of Israel. Maybe that's why the Torah talks about it so much. Because that's also beloved. The Jewish people's relationship with the land of Israel. Here it begins. It begins in Mars and Machpelah. So to speak, at any given opportunity, the Torah will go back and tell you the whole story again. You know, Mars and Machpelah, I've it from Ephron. We know. Yeah, the Torah knows we know. And it tells it again. Because when something is beloved, you tell it over again. That, I think, is what's behind all the repetitions and each, each uh, available opportunity the Torah reiterates. And thus we have explained all the repetitions. And what remains for us is to explain the absolute lack of mention with regards to Yitzhak. And I think perhaps that can also be explained in light of our discussion. Yitzhak <coughs> has a different relationship with the land of Israel than both his father and his son, in a very simple way. He's the only one of the Avos who never left the land of Israel, even temporarily. Avram was not born in Israel, and Yaakov spends much time in Lavan's house and in Mitzrayim. The only one who spent his entire life in Israel is Yitzhak. That is to say, the only one for whom the totality of his existence is encompassed within the land of Israel is Yitzhak. 
And perhaps, therefore, when it comes to Yitzchak, it's not as necessary as it is with Avram and Yaakov to, to go over the story of Marsa Machpelah, which is establishing their, their connection and, and ownership. <coughs> because Yitzchak establishes connection by his, by his ongoing presence, never leaving. And that's why what the Torah discusses at length with Avram and Yaakov, it doesn't mention at all with Yitzhak. And thus you have this harmony, in a sense, of acquisition, totality of existence, acquisition on the other side, and that gives us the, the full picture. So these, I think, are uh, very pertinent uh, comments, and uh, certainly, um, for me, really uh, opened up the, the understanding of the beginning of, uh, of Parshas Chayesara, when, when everyone starts bowing to each other and saying, please, my master, listen to me, to, to, to get a sense of, of, what is, of what is happening there. Well, Eliezer, as we move on to, uh, to Perik Kaftalid, which is, the, as we said, the, the, the longer Perik in the Parsha, and let's have a look <coughs> at a matter of phraseology. In Perik Kaftalid, uh, Avram calls Eliezer, and what does he say? Posuk Gimel. Perik Kaftalid, Posuk Gimel. So he calls Eliezer, his faithful servant, I will adjure you with an oath, make you take an oath, by Hashem, God of heaven, God of earth, do not take a child, a a wife for Yitzchak from Benosaknani. It's got to be from my birthplace, it's got to be from wherever, just not here. Okay. Now, At a certain point, in fact, in verse 6, so Vayomer, uh, pardon me, in, in, in intervening verses, Eliezer says, well, what, what if she doesn't want to come back? Then can I take, can or should I take uh, Yitzchak there? And, Hashem, uh, and Avram says no. Pasuk Zayin. Hashem, the God of heaven, who took me from, from there, etc., etc., he will help you out. It's going to work out, and even if it doesn't, Yitzhak still can't go back. What is significant uh, in terms of our discussion is that Avram's, our present discussion, is that <coughs> Avram's reference to Hashem has shifted between these two verses. In Pasuk Gimel, when he originally uh, administers the, the oath to Eliezer, he says, Vashpircha, I'll make you swear, Bashem Elokeh Shamaim, Velokeh Haaretz. Hashem is God of heaven, God of earth. When Eliezer says, well, what if, what if she doesn't want to come back? Should I? He says in Pasuk Zayin, Hashem Elokeh Shamai, who took me from my father's house, etc. What's behind this shift? Elokeh Shamaim, Elokeh Haaretz, first time around, and then Elokeh Shamaim. That, that is a, a n- notable shift. And indeed, it's noted by Rashi. And Rashi explains, to read Rashi's comments uh, briefly, in the second time round, Elokeh Shamaim, the God of heaven, Velo Amar Velokeh Haaretz. Doesn't say Elokeh Haaretz the second time round. Ulamalahu Ome Vashpiacha, Elokeh Shamaim, Elokeh Haaretz. So what's behind the discrepancy? Says Rashi, Amar Lo, Achshafu Elokeh Shamaim, Elokeh Haaretz. Now, in other words, currently, 
he is recognized as the God of heaven, the God of earth, because I've been able to spread word about him. But in Pasuk Zion, he's talking about Hashem who took him from his father's house. But at the time, back in the day, when I was taken from my father's house, when he took me from my father's house, people didn't recognize him. So he was a God in heaven, but not on earth. So, so in brief, what Rashi is, is accounting for the different references by saying that <coughs> I'm calling him the God of heaven and earth because that's how he is, because of what I've been able to do to spread awareness of him. But when he originally took me from my father's house, so then he was Elokea Shamayim, not recognized here on earth. That's Rashi's approach. A very different approach is to be found in the writings of the Ramban, Ramban's commentary here. And it won't be long before this comment of Ramban uh, evokes associations with many other similar comments of Ramban, as follows. Uh, and he begins by referring to uh, a well-known Gemara at the end of Maseches Ksubas. In the end of Maseches Ksubas, Daf Kufyud and Kufyud Aleph uh, and thereabouts, uh, they're the Gemaras which, which speak in praise of the land of Israel. Right? They're, they're the Eretz Yisrael sugyas. It begins with the Halachic sugya and then moves, moves towards our goddess. And the Gemara makes a, a well-known statement. Koladar be'eretz Yisrael. If a person who lives in the land of Israel, dome kemisha sheyeshlo aloka. So he's like someone who has a god. But if he lives in Chutzlaret, dome shemin le'enlo aloka. It's like he doesn't have a god. Now, clearly, that needs to be uh, understood but the Ramban explains that what it means is there is a certain immediacy of connection there is a certain directness of connection between Hashem and the Jewish people that exists only in Eretz Yisrael and in a sense what the Ramban says is explicit in the Torah because the Torah in Parshas Re'eh pardon me Parshas Akeb refers to the land of Israel as Eretz Asher Eine Hashem Elokechaba. It's a land that, that God's eyes are on that land. From the, from the beginning of the year until the end. Now, now, of course, Hashem's eyes are everywhere. And still, it's, it's stated specifically with regards to the, to the land of Israel because there is a certain uh, level of connection, however, it will be de- described. That, and and the Gemara, that's why the Gemara puts it so bluntly that the, if you live outside of Israel, it's like you don't have a God because, you, because you're missing that aspect of the, of the directness of the connection. So, says Ramban, and these are comments Ramban will develop at length in Parshas Toldos, in Parshas Acharemos, and at the risk of overstating things, basically wherever he can. What are the implications <coughs> for for our situation. Says Ramban, if you want to know why Avram refers to Hashem in one occasion as the God of heaven and earth and the other occasion as the God of heaven, look at the location. To where is he referring? When he originally calls Eliezer, and so he says in Pasuk Gimel, uh, he refers to Hashem as Elokei Shemayim, Elokei Aretz, because he is talking to him in Eretz Yisrael. And in Eretz Yisrael, in the fullest sense of the word, says Ramban, Hashem is Elokei Shamayim, but also Elokei Ha'aretz. His presence is felt 
and there in, uh, in the earth as well. The reason why in the later Pasuk, says Ramban, Avram refers to Hashem as Elokei Shamaim, is because where is he referring to Hashem doing things? Taking him from Chutz Laaretz. And moreover, he says, he will send a Malach before you. Where? To Chutz Laaretz. Because you're off to Haran. And therefore, because Avram is describing Hashem as doing things outside the land of Israel, he refers to him as Elokei Shamaim, but not Elokei Haaretz, because in Chutz Laaretz, that level of connection is missing. So it's a very interesting, different approach to this discrepancy. If we could summarize the difference between Rashi and Ramban, we would say that for Rashi, the difference between the two verses is a matter of history. That is to say, to what time frame are we referring? Currently, when thanks to Avram he is recognized as the God of heaven and earth? Or initially? when he was only recognized as God of heaven. So it's about before and after. According to Ramban, it's not about history, it's about geography. Where are we talking about? In the land of Israel or outside the land of Israel? It's a very interesting machlokus. You see how the, the, each of the Rishonim feel uh, this is the way uh, that the, the, the Psukkim should be understood. And the truth is, this might relate to another question altogether which begins in Pasuk Lamed Beis of Perik Kaftalet. I believe the, the discussion, uh, at least the beginning of the discussion, is quite well known. Perik Kaftalet, Pasuk Lamed Beis. Let us see. So we've skipped over the test, which, as we know, Rivka passed with flying colors, the, the impossible uh, Shidduch test. All others uh, pale in comparison. And <coughs> we have a look in Pasuk Lamed Beis. Vayavoha Ishabais, he's already been invited to Lavan's house. Vayifatach HaGemalim, and he undoes, he opens up the camels, he undoes the camels. Okay. What does that mean? Rashi explains. Vayifatach HaGemalim, he opened them up in what way? He released them in what way? Says Rashi, Hitir Zamam Shelahem. He opened up the muzzle, right? Avram's camels were muzzled. Right? He would block them, block up their mouths. That they shouldn't graze on the way from other, from other people's fields. That's Avram's practice. He muzzles his camels so they shouldn't uh, graze in other people's fields. Very nice. Everyone's happy. Everyone, that is, except for the Ramban. The Ramban cites a most astonishing question from the Medrash. The background to the question is, in other words, the the Medrash in the end will will find it very difficult to accept that Avram muzzled his camels. Why why would it find it difficult? The background (coughs) is a a well-known story with regards to the donkey of of Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair. So Pinchas ben Yar, one of the great holy uh, sages, one of the Tanoim. And uh, what happened is that he once leased out his donkey. And the people that rented it uh, from him, they came back after a couple of days complaining. The donkey's not eating. 
and they wanted a refund because if he doesn't eat, he can't work. Says Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair, have you taken miser from the food that you feed him? Because if you haven't, he's not going to eat. And they had to admit rather to, uh, shamefacedly that they had not taken miser. He says, go back to miser, we'll see. They take miser and the donkey starts to eat. That's an episode that's recorded in the Gemara, and it illustrates, as the Gemara itself captions it, it illustrates Hashem doesn't bring takola to tzaddikim, and even behemtam shel tzaddikim, even the animals of, of, of a tzaddik, when the animal of a tzaddik basically partakes, obviously, in his capacity, in his context, of the, of the, of the level of, of the tzaddik himself. So, says the Medrash, as quoted by Ramban, so will someone please explain why Avram would need to muzzle his camels? After all, we must assume that the camels of Avram were at least on the same spiritual level as the donkey of Rapinchas ben Yair. All of this is quoted in Ramban. And Ramban says, it's a good kasha. It's such a good kasha, it's practically unanswerable. And he gives a different explanation of what it's not about muzzling. It's maybe about they were tied with ropes just to lead them in a caravan. That, that's what it means. The, the, the ropes were untied, connecting them one to the other. <coughs> but to muzzle the camels of Avram, wouldn't be necessary. It's almost, you're almost casting aspersions on, the, on the, the spiritual level of Avram's camels. What a machlokas. It's very important to be aware of this machlokas, especially in light of another very well-known comment of Ramban. And my father, Zatzal, would always mention these two together. Ramban is well-known uh, for some of his critical comments with regards to the Avos. Specifically, when Avram, at the beginning of Parshas Lech Lecha, <coughs> when Avram leaves, uh, there's a famine in the land, and he leaves to go to Eretz Mitzrayim. Ramban says that was incorrect. Avram should have stayed and had bitochen in Hashem. That he would effectively, miraculously save him. Because if there's a famine in the land, there is no food. Nonetheless, he should have had bitochen. And, and he's known as being, speaking critically in that way. In his words, Avram Avinu unintentionally or mistakenly he made a great sin. What is crucial in this discussion is context. In other words, many people, uh, as unfortunately we find, they, they feast on the comments like these of Ramban, as if to say that the moral of a story is that nobody's perfect, and you know I have issues, and you have issues, and Avram had issues, and, and it, it, it levels the field. How important it is <coughs> to remember that the very same Ramban who says that Avram should have stayed in the land of Israel and relied on a miracle and is critical of him for leaving, is the same Ramban who can't imagine why Avram's camels would need a muzzle. Because obviously they're not going to eat from something that's not theirs. They're Avram's camels. This is the same Ramban talking about the same Avram Avinu. And when you put these two together, we begin to understand and important to remind ourselves that Avram's mistakes are not the same as our mistakes. It doesn't mean they're not mistakes and they don't need to be learned from. But we're not talking about the, the, we're not the, the parity that some people uh, rush to assume uh, Ramban is not having any of that. Either way. But back to our question, uh, if we assume 
<coughs> the Avram Avinu's camels don't need, don't need muzzles, so then, so then why would they be muzzled? Well, Meshachachma says very simply, I would say uh, a very straightforward answer, maybe Avram's camels don't need to be muzzled. But, but isn't part of Avram's job to set a good example for everyone else? I don't know that everyone else's camels are, are partake of the same spiritual qualities that Avram does. And therefore, okay, <coughs> perhaps <coughs> his camels don't need to be muzzled. But he has an eye on inspiring and educating others. And therefore, certainly, if you see his camels muzzled, people will follow his example. So it could be very, very simply a question of setting a good example. But a fascinating answer to Ramban's question Again, if we, if we synopsize the question, it's really the Medrash's question, but it's endorsed by Ramban. Repinches ben Yari's donkey doesn't eat food that he can't eat. Surely Avram's won't eat food that he can't eat. <coughs> Says Reb Yaakov Kamenetsky. Maybe they would. Why would we say that? We're, we're ruining everything. We're frustrating the equation. Why do I say that? Says Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, the basis for me saying this is one of the kinos of Tishabav. It's actually one of the later kinos. And if we may speak freely, I don't think we normally learn the kinos in the way they need to be learned. We're clearly not at peak focus at the time that we're saying them. And there's a lot of them. And obviously we do what we can. But we see that the Gedolim, I mean, Rav Soloveitchik was, was famous for doing this, but you, you see the, <coughs> the greats, the, the kinners are from Rishonim. They need to be learned. And one of the kinners, I can't remember which one it was, but really one of the late 30s or early 40s, Mamish, towards the end. It's one of the Tzion ones, right? Tzion, Tzion this, Tzion that. One of those final group cluster of, uh, of Tzion kinners. It's ascribed either to Rabbi Shlomo Ibn Gabiral or, or some to Rabbi Yudai Levi. And it speaks in praise of the land of Israel. Here's a sentence from that kina addressing the land of Israel. In you, every animal and bird were wise. So that Ben Yair, that is to say, Pinchas Ben Yair, his camel was, was the way that it was in you meaning in Zion, in the land of Israel. What is the kinna saying? Says so Rabbi the kinna is saying is that the elevated level of the donkey of Pinchas ben Yair was a tribute and a function to him living in the land of Israel. Part of the madrega of the land of Israel is that it could raise the madrega even of the animal of Rapinchas Benyar. You've got to be Rapinchas Benyar to be eligible for it. <coughs> but the kina says this in praise of the land of Israel, and the implication is this is something that could only happen in the land of Israel. That is a major find. Because, says Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, aside from anything else, it answers the Ramban's question. And I, ironically, if we would say, because the Ramban began by saying Hashem is only Elokei Haaretz in the land of Israel. But as we take the discussion, discussion further, <coughs> Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky says, Rabbi Yaakov donkey doesn't need, it's not going to eat anything that, that, that's also for it in the land of Israel. And certainly neither would Avram's. You know why he muzzled them? Because he's going to Haran. He's going to Chutzla Haaretz. Who knows if, if your camels will be as... as, as uh, on the required level that they don't need muzzles outside of the land of Israel. That's what, that's what uh, 
divides the two episodes. As Eliezer approaches uh, Lavan's house, so we have, he's greeted by Lavan, which is certainly something that one needs to brace for. In Perik Kafdalid, Posuk Kaftes and Lamed. Okay, Posuk Kaftes and Lamed. Posuk Kaftes, Ulurivka Ach, Ushemo Lavan. Rivka had a brother, he's called Lavan, and this is our introduction to Lavan. And Lavan runs out to, in the direction of the well where Eliezer is. Pasuglamet. When he sees the jewelry, uh, at the ring and the bracelets, when he hears the whole story, he comes to Eliezer. So Pasuk Kaftes describes him as running. And Pasuk Lama describes him as seeing the jewellery. What's the relationship between these two things? Well, not hard to fathom. Rashi joins the dots. Rashi says, Vayoratz on Pasuk Lamaratz. What's he running for? Vamaratz. The answer is in the, in the next Pasuk. Vayikarosis anezim. When he sees all the jewellery. Amar, he said, Ashihuzeh. This is a rich man. Venasan Eina Bamamon. Lavan is interested in money. And therefore, Pasuk Kaftes describes him as running, and Pasuk Lamed gives us the reason. What's interesting is, I mean, we note, and Rashi is clearly is not bothered by this, but we should note that the, the Psukim are written, in a sense, in reverse. Because it describes him running before it describes him as seeing the reason for him running, which is noteworthy. Again, Rashi does not consider that to be a, a glaring issue, but it is, <coughs> it is a worthwhile observation. And in fact, it is for this reason that the Meshachachma explains that the Psukim are in order so that Pasuk Kaftes describes him as running and Pasuk Lamed says when he saw the jewelry he stopped running. In other words, when he runs in the, in the first Pasuk, it's before everything that's happened. But that's a very puzzling thing to say. After all, uh, why would the sight of, of jewelry cause Lavan to, to stop running? As far as we're concerned, that's a, the, uh, Rashi's explained that that's the reason why he ran in the first place. Says Meshachachma. This is a million dollar Meshachachma. There is a medrash, the beginning of, uh, actually the Gemara also, I believe, in the end of the first parakel of Bava Basra, <coughs> the medrash uh, on our parsha. This whole chapter begins by saying, Vashem berach es Avram bakol. Hashem blessed Avram with everything. The question is, define everything. And this is one of the classic jobs of the Gemara, to define these things. Define everything. Says the Gemara, okay. It means he had a daughter. We don't hear much about Avram's daughter, but the Gemara says he had a daughter, which is it's quite a thing to say. And basically the Gemara is saying, you know, if you, if you have a daughter, you, you have everything. Define everything. Yeah, he had, he had a daughter. Uh-huh. So, 
the, the before Lavan starts running in Pasuk Kaftes, what do we find in Kafches 28? Rivka has just met Eliezer, passed her test, Vataratz Hanara, Vataged Lebeis Ima. She ran and she told her mother, Kadivarim Ha'ele, like these things. That expression, Kadivarim Ha'ele, with the letter Kaf, Kaf denotes approximately. What that means is that Lavan, in Pasuk Kafches, his the first he heard of this whole story was approximate. He heard snippets. After all, she wasn't running to tell him. She's running to tell the mother. But Lavan, of course, overhears. But what does he overhear? Kadvar me'ele. Approximately what's happening. What is happening approximately? What does he hear? Avram, a guest, Shidduch. He hears the, the general gist of what's happening. Except what? He knows that someone's coming from Avram for Shiduchim. He thought it was for him. Because Avram not only has a son, he also has a daughter. And that's why he starts running. Because someone's here from Avram for Shiduchim, and that's all he needs to do. He starts running. But you know what then happens? He slows down. But why does he slow down? Because he got to look at Rivka. And she's all decked out in jewellery. Which begins to dawn on him that, that, that Avram's emissary is not here for him. He's here for her. And that's why in Pasuk Lamed, when he sees the jewellery, and moreover, Ukish still in Pasuk Lamed, and when he, when he actually got a much better hearing of what Rivka said, right, exactly what the man said, so he actually slowed down. He's less than enthusiastic now. It's not for him. He sped off the, 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 the blocks, but he petered out. He still approaches Eliezer. He still wants to talk to him, but he's not running anymore because Eliezer didn't come for him. It's an unbelievable explanation of these psukim. I think for many people, they make their discoveries more in the long run. But it was a very short run for Lavan before he realized what was happening. And in fact, Lavan's focus will also explain something else to us, and with this we'll conclude in Pasuk Nun, and we've really been staying in Perik uh, Kaftalit uh, for now. In Pasuk Nun, um, what do we see? Eliezer retells the story, Vayan Lovan Vayomru, and they all respond and they say, Me'ashem Yatzahadavar, which is as close as you're going to get to, you know, Basheret. The Gemara actually quotes this as a source, Me'ashem Ishalaish, right? That Shidukim uh, is from Minashamai. Even Lovan recognized it, Me'ashem Yatzahadavar. Nothing we can say one way or the other. It's clearly ordained. It's clearly going to happen. That's very interesting. Because the very next day, five psukim later, in Pasuk Nunhei, when Eliezer says, time for me to go, what do they say? You know, maybe she should stay a while. A year, at least ten months, something. They're they're less enthusiastic on the morrow. 
And the Shailas of the Mephoshim want to ask is, what happened in between? After all, this time, you know, the evening before, match made in heaven, nothing we can say, and all of a sudden they're, they're less enthusiastic now. <coughs> Says the Shemishmur, the Sokotchev Rebbe, what happened in between is very simple. Lavan and his father, they see that Eliezer is a man of means, and therefore they're very enthusiastic initially about the Shidduch, because if he has so much money, then surely some of that is going to be coming our way. If this is a good deal. But what happens? Pasuk Nun Gimel. When they say they give the match their blessing, Pasuk Nun Gimel. The Evet, Eliezer, he brings out silver and gold and garments. And he gives them to Rivka. More gifts, but they're given to Rivka. What about the other rest of the family? And what did he give the rest of the family? Migdonos. What are Migdonos? Rashi says. Fruits. They're not in it for fruits. What does Rivka get? Gold, silver, and garments. What does everyone else get? Jaffa oranges. It's true. <coughs> they export the best. But that is not what they signed up for. And the more they saw and that the, 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 all they're going to get are, are really trinkets and souvenirs and whatever else might be going. Um, I think uh, Dead Sea Minerals had recently become uh, <laughs> available as per the events of Parshas Vayera. Perhaps. But they begin to have second thoughts, and that's why they start hemming and hawing, and maybe she can wait, etc. But in a sense, and, and with this just the, fi- the final comment, which really uh, sums everything up, it is in a sense <coughs> also in a shamayim that, that, that they shouldn't be happy with a match. One could almost see a, a, a resonance at the end of the parsha with the beginning. In the beginning, Avram doesn't want to receive a gift from Ephron because the land of Israel has got nothing to do with Ephron. He pays for him and they part ways. So too, with regards to Rivka, maybe it's important that her family should not be enthusiastic about the Shidduch because they're, they're not meant to participate in it. Uh, in the end, they uh, resist and Rivka goes anyway. And with that, she cuts ties with them. I mean, her son will yet meet Uncle Lavan in a couple of sukkim's time. But in terms of her relationship with Yitzchak, she's not drawing off her family as they come together. The families are not, are, are, are not wedding together. She is detaching herself from her family. She is the one who's joining herself. It's almost, in a sense, a, a repeat of Lech Lecha. Where, where, she, where she leaves, whether you like it or not, I'm going. And they don't like it, and still she's going. And with that uh, begins the second generation of the building of the foundations of the House of Israel, uh, of which will continue in the ensuing parishes. But we'll leave it over here for this evening. Have a good night and a wonderful weekend.